0: Hi, I'm Greg Euland with Reynolds and & Reynolds, and this is Connected. Uh, today's a great, uh, great conversation. I get to sit down with Brian Moss. Brian is the president of the California New Car Dealers Association. He's also the current, for at least the next week or so, uh, chairman of the ATAE. Uh, so, Brian, thanks so much for, uh, for sitting down and talking. Thanks for having me, Greg. Appreciate it. Yep, for sure. So, uh, in your role, California is obviously a large state, right? California has a large population. Um, and California has the most, I believe, new car dealers uh, by state in the country. That's so correct. you have yeah, so you have a broad perspective when it comes to what 's going on out there, obviously California tends to be a little ahead of the rest of the country too, in some legislation, so your job is uh, both large by by scope of number of dealers but also uh, unique in that oftentimes it seems like you 're uh, facing some of these issues maybe a little sooner than than others throughout the country are
1: yeah that 's true. Uh, we have about fourteen hundred rooftops uh, in California. Um, and about 85 to 90 percent of those are members of our association. And California has about 40 million people. Um, and in a typical year, we'll sell 2 million new cars uh, in California. One out of every eight new cars sold in the country is sold here. So uh, not only in the auto industry are are we uh, leaders, but uh, also in uh, the progressivity, if that's a word, of our legislature. Uh, A lot of new uh, and rather interesting ideas uh, usually germinate here, and they tend to spread uh, eastward across the country.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so thinking about that, what percentage of those ideas Right, you see them all. I, I assume you see, and you can tell me about how many are, are outstanding currently. Right, but um, what percentage of those ideas typically actually make it through to a formalized bill or into actual legislation? Oh,
1: there are lots of bills. We have about twenty five hundred bills that are introduced every year in California. Um, somewhere around eight to eight hundred to a thousand uh, are presented to the governor, and he. Uh, or she uh, signs 85% of those. So you're talking six 700 new laws every year. Now, obviously not all of those affect uh, car dealers, but a substantial portion do. Uh, one of our biggest seminar series we do for our members is our new law seminars, where we go around the state uh, in person and educate our dealers on uh, the laws that are going to affect our business Not only just the laws that might affect, you know, sales and finance or things that they have to do in their store relative to being a car dealer, but things they have to do as California business people. So wage and hour changes, other changes. Uh, And it's it's a daunting task. And our dealers uh, rely on us to explain uh, all the rules of the road that they have to follow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, one of the bills um, that I think you and your team worked on and, and introduced, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, over the last couple of years. And if I remember right, it was signed into law uh, this fall um, was the uh, uh, California Bill 473. Um, and and, I, and a lot of that hinged on um, really the franchise system and protecting it, right, and, and tweaking it a little bit. Because, I mean, there were obviously um, pretty solid laws in place. But um, could you share a little bit for anybody that doesn't know maybe the, the high-level bullets of what that, uh, sure. that that bill entailed? Yeah, so uh,
1: I and my colleagues that run dealer associations across the country, um, we're responsible for the franchise laws that protect dealers and consumers in our respective states. And uh, periodically, every few years, we go to the legislature and ask them uh, to update or make changes uh, to those laws. And AB 473 uh, was uh, that bill in 2023. Um, uh, Generally, what these laws tend to do is make sure that the manufacturers can't overreach in terms of uh, the control that they're seeking about how dealers run their businesses and we want to uh, maintain the independence of the franchise system. So uh, that tends to be the the yin and the yang of these bills. Uh, Assembly Bill 473, our main goal was to ensure that manufacturers couldn't compete against their own franchisees by selling directly to consumers. Uh, we're particularly concerned about... Uh, announcements that uh, VW has made relative to the new Scout brand or Sony Honda has made in their partnership, where uh, notwithstanding the fact there are lots of VW dealers that would like to sell uh, Scout vehicles or lots of Honda dealers that would like to sell you know, vehicles uh, as part of the Sony Honda partnership, um, the companies have been pretty vague about how they were going to sell those vehicles. And we strengthened our law to ensure that if uh, an entity is affiliated with an existing OEM that has franchisees, they have to use their franchisees to sell vehicles. What we wanted to avoid is the manufacturer would pick and choose uh, winners and losers. They would decide, well, some vehicles we're going to sell through this direct channel and other vehicles we're going to sell through this uh, independent channel. Um, and we didn't feel that's appropriate. If, if you've got a franchise, uh, network, uh, you should sell your vehicles through the franchise network.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean that that makes complete sense. I am curious. So, from your perspective, um, obviously, you work on this stuff all day long, right? And there's there's two, I think at least two perspectives on this. You have the the legal perspective, right? And and a lot mm-hmm. of that uh, ties in with the work that you do, and, and it's extremely important. Um, but the other side of it too is is the the value perspective, right? And when I think about the car dealership, right, the franchise car dealer, uh, they're providing. Probably the most value in the automotive ecosystem, I believe. Right. So they're providing value to the consumer in a plethora of different ways. There's a ton of different ways of providing value to the consumer. I also believe they're providing value to the manufacturer. They're providing value to lenders They're providing there's all these different ways of providing value. Um, so I always question when I see things like this, BW Scout is a good example, right? Um, or maybe we can talk about this uh, in a little bit too, Hyundai with Amazon, right? Some of these deals going on, um, mm-hmm. I, I question from a manufacturer's perspective, um, you know, where, where are they missing the value, right? Where do they, where are they not seeing, where are they not recognizing the value that that dealer is bringing? Cause it seems so obvious to me. I just, I don't know if you have a perspective on that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, some of this is um, manufacturers are chasing um, the stock price or the value that they perceive in other entities, and uh, they come up with what I'd consider to be a false syllogism. Uh, Tesla's worth a lot of money. Uh, Tesla sells direct. Therefore, in order to make a lot of money or be worth a lot of money, we have to sell direct. And... Uh, I'm sure some of that may be true, but they're missing, as you stated, the true value of the franchise relationship. And for over 125 years, dealers have been franchised and have been successful and have adapted to every technological change in our industry. Um, And whether that's how vehicles are sold uh, or... Uh, the technology in the vehicles, dealers are constantly uh, updating their ability to reach their customers. And, uh, you know, I could probably go on for the whole length of this podcast on the value of franchise dealers, but suffice to say that they bring value to the OEMs because they're the ones that invest in single purpose fixed facilities, Um, in most cases in the tune of millions of dollars. Uh, that the OEMs don't have to spend. Uh, they're a, a distributed uh, network of dealerships uh, that are based largely in local communities uh, across the country. So again, uh, consumers can go to a dealer nearby uh, to get uh, purchase the vehicle, to have it serviced, uh, to deal with questions about um, how the vehicle is going to run, uh, re, uh, recalls, warranty, uh, by parts. Um, all those things are available through a dealership, let alone all the DMV work that, um, a dealership does. Uh, if you think about a car transaction, it's not just <laughs> buying, uh, something over the internet and then, you know, taking it home. These are complicated transactions of vehicles worth over $50,000, On average now, for a new car, uh, uh, consumers are trading in older vehicles. Dealers handle all that paperwork. Uh, Consumers, uh, most of them finance the purchase of their vehicle. Dealers handle all that. Um, In some cases, dealers might choose to lease the vehicle. They can do that through the dealership. So, uh, as you suggested, the dealers are uh, the point for consumers to interact with uh, uh, securing their personal transportation needs and are a vital part of the system uh, that, you know, in a typical year, the SARS you know, anywhere between 15 and 18 million new cars a year in the United States. So, uh, right. you
0: know, proud to represent them no no that's that's great, and uh, you know when you think about that, you mentioned all the different ways that the dealer's adding value and and I think even for what would can get lost for a manufacturer right is well co- consumers are buying cars online right they buy a Tesla online why why wouldn't they buy a fill in the blank online right? why wouldn't they do that? and I think the reality is um you know the vast majority vast majority i mean i, I you could probably give me the number more than I could, but the vast majority of of consumers um, are going to have a trade, right? They're going to need help um, arranging financing, right? When you when you really pull the covers back, um, which can be, I think, difficult for some of us that maybe aren't in that position to to recognize, there's a huge portion of, of consumers that wouldn't be able to or know how to go to their bank and get a loan for a car. Right, they expect that to be part of the transaction at the dealership, and that's and that's great, right? And it's great that our dealers can can provide that service to them. Um, but it's not it's not a buy now button. That's not how how the car deal works. It, I mean, you brought it up, and I agree. I think you know a retail new vehicle transaction is is probably the most complex retail transaction, in certainly in the U.S. Um, I would say more so than buying a house. Um, buying a car is, is I think that the most complex transaction. So you, you needed an expert to help guide the consumer through that. Um, and you know, it, there's just so much more to it than, than deciding to buy the car.
1: For sure. And, uh, you know, I think what people tend to, uh, fail to understand when they look at a direct sales model like Tesla, uh, Tesla has been very successful in doing, a narrow band of things that dealers do—they're selling high-end electric vehicles to a certain class of customer who can afford them. Mm-hmm. Franchise new car dealers sell new cars and used cars to everyone. Yep. Uh, when uh, it doesn't matter your economic status, it doesn't matter whether you can aff- uh, you have the. Uh, resources to pay cash for a high-end EV, Um, franchise dealers serve everybody. And as a result, when a customer walks into a dealership or it starts to engage with a dealership online, they have to make sure that the product that they're offering covers the whole gamut of potential customers. Whereas, you know, if you're not interested, again, using the Tesla example, in a high-end EV, you're not going to Tesla. They don't sell minivans. You're not buying a Tesla <laughs> minivan. So uh, our franchise dealers do, though. And right. uh, you know, if you uh, until the recently the Cybertruck, and that's again a really narrow niche of, of vehicle. There um, are very few pickup trucks available uh, that were electric, but uh, our f- franchise dealers sell those. So right. I think uh, you know, making sure that it's not lost on policymakers and, uh, you know, folks engaged in the debate about the future of personal uh, automotive transportation understand that dealers have a critical role to play here.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, So I mentioned it earlier, and I'm curious on your take on. Uh, the the deal with Hyundai and Amazon. So for a few years, um they've worked together, right? So dealerships have been able to post their vehicles on Amazon. Um and it's it's really been the lead source, you know, kind of like a, a marketplace site like a cars.com or something like that. Um that's really how it's how it's acted. You would click learn more, it'd go to the dealer's website. So now they've announced obviously that they're going to the next level um where the transaction can occur on Amazon. Um, now, you know, the details are still, it seems a little to be worked out. Um, it's not completely crystal clear. Uh, but I I'm curious on your, your read on this one, cause it's, it's, it feels a little bit in the gray area, right? It's not like you were describing with the, the scout Volkswagen relationship. Um, but it's also not encouraging the, the consumer to work directly with the dealer. So there's this, this kind of middle area that they're they got, I think, toes in the water on. So I'm curious what your read is on that particular deal.
1: Yeah, I think it's too early to know, Greg. I think uh, we're waiting for more information uh, from both Hyundai and Amazon. Uh, our understanding, this, this is a pilot project yep. with a limited number of dealers that are going to be uh, a narrow band of sales to a current Amazon employees. Um uh, and you know it's in a beta testing mode, if you will, uh, probably for at least the first half of this year. The question that we and all my colleagues that run dealer associations have, uh, and certainly Hyundai and other dealers across the country, is well, where does it go next? You know, what 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 is the ultimate goal of Hyundai in this case, and Amazon, um, and? How involved are dealers going to be in uh, the sales funnel or the sales process? I don't think Amazon is going to wrap vehicles in an Amazon logoed box <laughs> and drop them in folks' driveway. So somebody is going to have to have uh, some engagement with dealers and what have you. And really what we're trying to do myself and my colleagues that run dealer associations, is to ensure that uh, Hyundai and Amazon are complying with the various laws uh, that govern how vehicles are sold and marketed uh, in the 50 states, and to ensure that dealers continue to uh, uh, retain their relationship with the ultimate customer. Because let's face it, if something happens with the transaction or the vehicle, you're not driving to seattle to amazon headquarters to um get the vehicle fixed you're going to go to your local dealer and we want to make sure that uh, dealers have an active role as they do today in uh the sale and service of those vehicles
0: yeah yeah 100% it'll be it'll be interesting um and again it goes back to that that value right so if as a simple example, if that consumer, um, if, you know, Hyundai's captive lending institution doesn't want to finance that consumer, then what, right? Then then what happens? And there's all these different variables. So it, it will be very interesting to see how it plays out um, over the next six to 12 months, but one to one to watch for sure. Um, one thing I did want to double click back into was um, uh, bill that AB 473 bill, because I think mm-hmm. one of the points in it um, had to do with post-sale subscriptions, and is, is that accurate? And maybe you could uh, elaborate on that. This one's really interesting to me because I think there's potential for this to be another um, area that dealers can provide value in the ecosystem.
1: Yeah. When we were looking at you know the various announcements that uh, manufacturers make relative to vehicles, one thing that was concerning to us was – Manufacturers, they were going to charge a subscription for something that's already hardwired in the car. So they'd have so the to ability to turn, yeah, to turn on or turn off something. Um, BMW announced in Europe uh, that they were going to charge a monthly subscription for heated seats. Yep. Okay, you don't need software to turn on or turn off heated seats. It's already in the car. Uh, it's a feature that consumers expect. Um, and our concern was uh, that uh, manufacturers go down a road where they turn off various features that consumers expect. And again, if you use your imagination, you can imagine other things, you know, anti-lock brakes or other safety features. And, and we felt like that that's a bridge too far. It's one thing to charge for OnStar or Sirius XM radio where you have to have constant software updates and you're constantly maintaining a network. Sure. That makes sense. You know, updating the maps in your vehicle, you could charge for that, but if it's hardwired in the car and nothing is going to change, we wanted uh, to make sure that uh, OEMs couldn't do that. So we passed uh, one of the provisions of AB 473 was they couldn't do that. And the California legislature really glommed on to that uh, mm-hmm. because the concern is when a consumer goes to buy that vehicle, they want to make sure they know exactly what they're buying. Mm-hmm. And if somehow a manufacturer can turn on or turn off a subscription two or three years after the vehicle is purchased, um, you feel like it's uh, you know akin to a bait and switch. And you're not um, – Uh, getting the value of the vehicle uh, that you expect. Moreover, if you're buying a used car, well, does it have heated seats or not? How how is the dealer supposed to retail that car um, and uh, tell the customer, well, it's hardwired for heated seats, but you're going to have to call the manufacturer to figure out what the monthly cost is for heated seats. And maybe the consumers never dealt with the manufacturer doesn't want to deal with the manufacturer. And it just, it, it raised too many questions. So the, the provision's pretty narrow. Again, it's, it's about hardwired provisions or uh, aspects of the vehicle. Um, It's not things that need software updates or can uh, constantly be updated, but we felt like uh, we had to put a little bit of a line in the sand and say, you know, that would be a bridge too far. And, Uh, The legislature and the governor agreed to sign the bill.
0: That's great. That's great. You know, this this area is one that's interesting to me looking forward into the future. Right. And I think about, again, how how dealers are adding value and this whole concept, this connected car concept. There's I, I believe at some point there's probably going to be a pretty robust marketplace. Right. For features in the connected car. Um, so I, I honestly see it as an opportunity for dealers and you think about it as a monthly subscription, but I would, I would pull it back and say, okay, so that BMW as an example, what if, you know, so every vehicle is, and, and heated seats is probably the, a bad example, but we'll, we'll keep it because it's simple and it's easy to understand. So heated seats, right? The car is hardwired for it to your point. Um, could that be a feature that is paid for upfront, right? So the dealer sells that as a I'm just going to throw a number out $3,000 add on, right? Um, Much like they do for other accessories and aftermarket products. Um, So is that an opportunity in the future? And and, you know, that could could expand out to other connected software types of of features. Um, But where you could you could package it up front? Uh, to the point where you're almost customizing the car in the store. It, it uh, almost empowers that salesperson or that F&I producer um, to have a broader uh, broader set of products in their bag to sell. Um, so I don't know. I think it's an interesting interesting one to watch as well. I don't know if you have a, a thought on that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, obviously uh, I represent the dealers. Uh, we're about advocating on their behalf. Uh, we want to give them as many opportunities uh, to and and derive future revenue from uh, transactions uh, with their customers. Um, But we also want it to be fair and reasonable to all parties involved. And um, if a customer doesn't know what the vehicle has or doesn't have, um, that's a real concern. And again, I think from our perspective, we dipped our toe in the water and we, you know, um, said, let's at least draw a line here, and then let's have a debate down the road about what what subscriptions really look like, who sells them, who derives revenue from them, how long do they last, what happens to used cars with these vehicles, yeah. what happens when, if an OEM goes bankrupt and you're still driving a car, and There's no company to turn on or turn off the software. If it's a vital component of the vehicle, what happens then? So I think these are all good questions to be asking. And we're going to have to engage with our manufacturer partners uh, and uh, public policymakers in legislatures across the country to try and answer some of these questions. We don't have all the answers, um, but we feel like these are good questions to ask.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Those are excellent things to think about for sure. Um, Another another topic shifting gears a little bit here, Brian, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on one that's uh, really top of mind right now. It's topical is uh, the uh, FTC cars rule. So mm-hmm. this one is one that um, it just, I, you know, well, based on your exhale there, I assume you feel the same way I do. Like, what do, what are we doing here? Um, you know, it takes on average. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but you know, when you when you print out, and this is average across the U.S., you print out a car deal, single copy. You lay it end to end. Currently, it sits at thirty nine feet. Right, thirty nine feet of paper for every single car deal, single copy. That is unbelievable, right? And it's all just its all just regulation after regulation after regulation that, that caused this. And then you look at this CARS rule, and it's only going to add form after form after form. So i um, curious your take on it. Maybe we can get into to it a little bit after. Sure. H- happy to chat about
1: it. I think um, you have to ask yourselves, what what's the harm that the FTC is trying to fix here? And NADA has done a fabulous job of diving deep into um, what was the vehicle shopping rule. And then they changed the name to the cars rule, um, which belies kind of the intent of where the FTC is going. It's combating auto retail scams. That's what cars stands stands for. So they're clearly um, revealing their bias here. They don't like the car sales process and they, they want to, um, you know, impose draconian restrictions on how uh, dealers are retailing cars, but they, they haven't really effectively answered the question, what's wrong with the current process of uh, vehicle sales? And in California, we're the most regulated state. I think our 39 feet of documents is much longer than that um, here. And, uh, you know, we've documented like 15 pages of different statutes that dealers have to comply with when they sell a vehicle. So what's deficient in a state like California with our sales process? Uh, We filed comments to the FTC and said, you're imposing rules over the top of California rules, but you haven't really dealt with the uh, potential conflict between rules. So if the rule uh, becomes effective in its present form, dealers might have to hand two contradictory forms to customers trying to describe certain parts of the process. Consumers are going to be confused by that. And the claim, uh, to be honest, it's almost laughable that the FTC makes that it's going to save consumers time at the dealership uh, by dealers complying with a 372 page rule is it, it makes no sense. So that being said, should does the FTC have the authority to regulate dealers? Of course. Uh, are there parts of the car sales process that can be uh, improved? Absolutely. But the FTC uh, really uh, went at this with a sledgehammer and they didn't do the due diligence up front, um, to document exactly what the problems were. Um, you know, NADA's research indicated they interviewed some 30-something consumers total to come up with these rules. The whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense. And um, I'm grateful that the FTC has stayed the rule. i um, not sure if your uh, viewers or listeners are aware of that, but... Um, NADA and the Texas auto dealers, uh, sued to invalidate the rule f- for many of the reasons I mentioned, plus many more. And the FTC said, well, while that litigation is pending, we're going to suspend the effective date of the rule, which originally was July 30th of this year until, uh, the litigation is complete. So there's a little bit of a reprieve while the battle in the courts goes out. But, uh, I hope that the FTC takes a long and hard look, whatever the result of the litigation, and goes back to the drawing board and uh, rethinks the rule and really has a dialogue with uh, companies in the ecosystem of uh, car sales, not just dealers, but everybody who's part of the sales process, including uh, your organization, and says, how can we make this process better rather than calling it combating auto retail scams and, uh, you know, uh, making it a pejorative, uh, attempt to say that, you know, whatever car dealers do is, is harmful to consumers.
0: Yeah. So where ultimately do you see it landing? Obviously, you know, the, the stay has been granted and, and that'll carry on historically though. And you know, better than I do, um, I would say very rarely do these things go away, right? So the FTC is going to implement something, whether it's exactly what's there today or not, will we'll still to be determined. But do you see it fundamentally changing from what it is today um, once it does presumably go into effect? And it, it may not, I suppose. But again, historically, there, there's not yeah. a lot of things to point to that would say it wouldn't go into effect. I'll give you an example of a rule
1: that, a uh, part of the rule that I think is going to survive. Okay. Um, in 2006, California enacted the Car Buyers Bill of Rights. And one of the elements of that is that our dealers have to provide a pre contract disclosure statement. Um, we actually worked with Reynolds in developing the form that our dealers use today. And what you have to do is you have to uh, provide this form that indicates if you're buying um, an aftermarket product. Uh, a uh, theft deterrent device, or a service contract, or GAP, or something like that. You have to show on this form the price of the vehicle, monthly payment uh, of of the car with that product and without that product. So a consumer can tell, oh, it's five hundred dollars a month without the product, and it's five hundred and fifty dollars a month with the product. That's a That's a good consumer benefit. And our dealers have been living with that for um, 18 years now. The FTC rule has some elements of that. It's not very well drafted, but I think something like that is likely to survive. And we've proven in California that dealers can comply, and it actually provides more transparency to consumers uh, so they have a better understanding of uh, what they're purchasing, and dealers aren't hiding the ball it's evident right in the form as right. to what uh, consumers are deciding to buy and you know what it's worth it for me to pay fifty dollars more a month for this product or it's not and uh, that disclosure happens right up front before the contract is even signed
0: yeah no that's great that's a, that's a great example um, and and hopefully right that is where things get streamlined too uh to to have an effective uh, effective rule in place versus something that's, that's broad. And, and to your point, it feels, and this, this goes across the board, but when you, you name something in that way, I'm glad you called it out. Um, you know, I said the car's rule and then I had it written down to make sure to, to kind of spell out the acronym and you, you did right away because it really does just, you know, shed light on the angle that, uh, that, that this is being attacked at.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh- Again, the FTC has the authority to regulate dealers. Dealers are fine complying with the law. I mean, you know, the reason I have my job is our whole goal is to educate our dealers on how to comply with the various rules, federal, state, and local, that impact them. But when somebody names something a pejorative name, it it belies uh, any intent to try and. Uh, make the system better and it looks like you're just trying to stick it to the man. And that, that's, that's not helpful. Um, And especially since when the, the rule was originally entitled the vehicle shopping rule, and then they changed the name to the cars rule. What are you doing here? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's unfortunate, frankly, because as I mentioned, there are elements in the FTC rule that if properly drafted and implemented, would make the car buying process better. But that's going to get lost in the fact that you're calling it names. And um, you're going to get the dander up of folks who uh, don't have any interest in working with the FTC. And uh, it's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, yeah um no that's that's good insight I appreciate it so Brian another thing I just want to get get your take on it again being in California, you typically um well not typically often see um things come down the pike a little sooner than other states possibly um you know what's what's next you think what are what are some of the topics that uh, you and your team are focused on uh when it comes to auto retail and um you know what what do dealers need to be prepared for well
1: uh, hey One thing I've learned in my um, 20 plus years working for uh, the California association here is the industry is always changing and dealers continually have to adapt to those changes. You know, California is the home of Silicon Valley. A lot of technical technological advancement uh, happens and starts here and then spreads across the country. So I think, um, Making sure that dealers are in a position uh, to adjust to whatever uh, is coming their way uh, makes sense. There, you know, look at the recall system, for example. Uh, okay. We faced various proposals over the years um, that sought to ground every car that it was subject to an open recall. Um, that doesn't make sense, but. The system is pretty broken. You got 50 million recalls a year and some third to half of recalls are never uh, repaired. That's not a good system. So somebody's gonna come up with a better way to solve that problem. Um, You've got the direct sales manufacturer competition issue. You're gonna hear a lot more about that if manufacturers like VW Scout or Sony Honda continue to make similar announcements. I think um, more transparency in the disclosure and the F&I part of the process is likely to happen. Um, You know, there are, unfortunately, dealers who um, aren't as transparent as they probably should be about the products that they sell. And it's our job to encourage them to be more transparent uh, because ultimately that's going to help them. And their customers understand uh, what it is their customers are buying. Um, the other piece is dealers are often the point of the spear when there's a uh, societal or transportation problem or issue. And in California, at least, because There's limited ability to make the manufacturers do things that the legislature would otherwise like them to do. They instead impose the burden on dealers. And um, that's why you have 39 feet of documents in a typical deal is because, well, we can make the dealers do it. We can't control international manufacturers. But we can make the dealers give another disclosure or we can make the dealers do a new process or we can make the dealers do some additional thing. And what folks uh, tend to uh, miss is that in an individual disclosure, it might make perfect sense. Now, we have a uh, a disclosure law that passed in California that says um, if if somebody doesn't want a front license plate installed on a vehicle, those are required in California. Um, you have to give them the bracket, and you got to get them to the sign a disclosure form that you gave them the bracket. Well, that makes the transaction more complicated and more difficult. You can understand why that law was enacted, so that somebody um, you know has the tools and the capacity to put on the front license plate. But when you pile that on top of all the other things a dealer has to do and a customer needs to engage with during the F&I process, that's that's really frustrating. So I think uh, figuring out how we can respond to the technological advancements that are trying to shorten the car sales process and resist the tendency of people to want to impose more disclosures at the point of sale. Um, You got to sign this form. Legislature passed a bill in California last year um, that requires 20 point font on whether or not there is an in-vehicle camera facing the driver of the vehicle. Huh. Why do they need to impose a twenty-point font? And you know, if you you go in Word or some document today and you go look at what twenty-point font is, <laughs> it's huge. And they right. uh, have a five hundred-word paragraph. So the form we worked on with Reynolds to develop this thing takes up a whole page. What customer is going to read that thing? Uh, and that's just on top of all the other forms they have to do. So I think you know we as an industry have to figure out. Uh, what's the sweet spot between appropriate, necessary disclosure and over disclosure so that people, you know, shut it down, don't pay any attention. And it's a sign here, sign here, sign here transaction. And the whole point of the additional uh, disclosures becomes lost.
0: Yep. You're right. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. That, that, signing ceremony should mean something. It shouldn't be just uh, all right, here, here, and here. So no, that's, that's a great point. Um, well, Brian, this has been a great conversation. I, I was hoping maybe we could end on, um, something that, that I think is a, a great thing that, that your organization does. Um, I always, I always like it when we can bring new people into the industry. And, um, I was hoping you could just shed some light on the scholarship foundation that the, uh, uh CNCDA offers and, um, and what that looks like, uh, just, you know, the more that we can all learn about what others are doing, I think it enables us to to bring more people into the industry. So maybe a couple minutes on that, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Appreciate it, Greg. Thank you. Um, yeah, we've had for over 20 years, a foundation that, uh, that gives uh, scholarships to aspiring technicians at dealerships in the hopes that um, if they complete their uh, usually community college program, they can go to work at a dealership. And what we realized is while giving scholarships is great and we're continuing to do that, we needed to broaden our mission. So we've actually changed the name of the foundation. It's now the CNCDA Foundation. Uh, we've hired an executive director, uh, Kim McFall, who does a fantastic job. Uh, she's hired a staffer to help her. and we're really focused on workforce development more broadly at dealerships. And uh, we have a scholarship program as part of that. But we're also looking at doing some apprenticeship programs, uh, getting some government grants, working closely with community college programs, and really raising the awareness of uh, young people in particular to enter the field of automotive um, as a potential career. Um, There isn't a dealership in California that doesn't pay their technicians six figures Um, and um, it can be well-paying. You don't necessarily have to have a four-year degree. Um, you can work with your hands, um, and uh, in some cases, you got to be computer proficient because most of these electric vehicles, in particular, are software-driven. So when it's a real opportunity. It- uh, it's a real opportunity to open the eyes of. Um, of uh, young people to enter into our industry, and we're really excited uh, about kind of this new modified direction of the foundation and where it's going to go. And uh, you can expect to hear more about it in the in the coming years.
0: That's great. Well, thank you for all you're doing there. You know, and I would just add to you said you know it, in a lot of cases it, it's um, a possibility to be computer proficient. I'd say every technician on the planet that's working in a franchise dealership has to be computer proficient. I mean, you. You get a car in your bay, and the first thing you do is plug in a computer right into the dongle, and it's you're looking at this screen and trying to understand what these readings are saying. Um, right. It, it's, you know, you, you really need to be able to diag at an electrical, at a really a computer level um, to, to get to the root cause of, of virtually every issue um, aside from maintenance and things like that. For sure. All right, good. Well, uh, Brian Moss, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking. Uh, before we hop off, is there anything else that you want, to, uh, you want to touch on? Anything we didn't talk about that we should or anything that's top of mind for you?
1: No, I'm just excited to uh, go to the NADA show uh, uh, later this week. Uh, it's a real opportunity to connect with um, you know, dealers, vendors, uh, other associations across the country. Um, it's really the place where uh, the entire auto industry gathers together. And, um, uh, it, it's, it's a great week. I always look forward to it and, uh, really want to thank you, Greg, for taking
0: the time to chat with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to catch up out there this weekend. Um, so Brian Moss, president of the California new car dealers association. Thank you so much. And, uh, hopefully, like I said, we'll see you, see you this weekend. Sounds good. Well, that was a fun and insightful conversation with Brian Moss, president of the California New Car Dealers Association and outgoing chairman of the ATAE. Really appreciate Brian sitting down and chatting. Always insightful uh, news coming out of California. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Before we hop off, don't forget, you can watch and listen to episodes of Connected on YouTube, Apple and Spotify podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe so you're notified every other week when new episodes are released. Thanks so much and we'll see you in two weeks.